Thank you for the reading of God's Word. And uh, I finally get to preach a sermon that I've been birthing for quite a while here. It's almost like, you know, uh, you're in overtime and you're wondering when will it ever come. In fact, it's become a joke among uh, uh, our staff. You know, will you finally preach on that blessed assurance? Well, the, the blessed assurance refers to the song that many of us may remember from Billy Graham crusades in the past. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We don't sing that song nearly often enough, I think. But uh, really, it, it, it has to do with the culmination of that first letter of the Apostle John, who was uh, the one of the disciples who was probably closest to the heart of Jesus. We, we find him reclining at, uh, at Jesus' breast during the Lord's Supper, the final uh, you know, kind of farewell meal that Jesus had with his disciples. And, uh, uh, but before we get into this message, let me just make a comment about the video, because uh, Cal Hohn is actually a good friend of our son Daniel. They were in college together. They traveled on a, on a New Day drama and music team together. Uh, his father was uh, actually my colleague when, when I was the area minister in Manitoba, Saskatchewan. Uh, his father was the uh, area minister for BC, and so we had a lot of uh, common contact and so on. Uh, his, his father has passed away in the meantime. The thing that struck me when I was watching him speak about what's happening. He has to be very careful how he words things and what he says, uh, but the reality is uh, uh, I, I felt he, he looked tired. You know, he's Daniel's age. He should be a whole lot more energetic than I am, uh, but uh, he's, he's gone through a very difficult time because during this conflict in, uh, over in Cameroon, uh, and it involves the Christian contingency not all of them are evangelical Christians, but mostly Christians in the south, mostly Muslim in the north. Uh, that conflict has, been, has led to bloodshed. Uh, some of our funds actually go to a relief fund that helps people that lose their homes, lose their family members, and what have you. So we need to be praying for that because it is a difficult situation, and as, as in so many places in the world. And again, we read in the scripture that that the whole world lies in the sway of the evil one. Well, those are the manifestations, okay? And yet we who are believers in Jesus have a new relationship. So let's pause in a word of prayer. Let's get into the message together. Father God, our hearts are full this morning because we've already expressed our praise and our worship and adoration to you and to the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that we have in him new life. We have in him new perspectives on what life is all about. And so, Father, this morning as we open your holy word, we pray that you would uh, enlighten the, the, the eyes of our spirit so that we would not only hear with our ears, but understand with our minds and, and respond with our hearts to what it is you are saying to us through uh, the word this morning, especially through this letter the culmination of the letter that the Apostle John felt he needed to share with fellow believers who were struggling with issues. And so, Father, may it speak to our hearts this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three key questions that come to me as I read that letter and as I think in terms of what John has already been sharing because we've actually preached through the first letter of John over the last number of uh, 
couple of months or so and, and interrupted, of course, because we've alternated uh, themes. But the first question is, why would anybody be willing to suffer this much and perhaps even die for their faith? You see, in Cameroon, when this whole thing broke, some of our missionaries had to be relocated because they no longer were in a safe place. And some of them did this reluctantly because they said, we are here to work with our native brothers and sisters, and if we flee, they can't. And how, how dare we leave them behind? But some of them were asked to leave simply because our mission was not willing to sacrifice them and their life unnecessarily because this is a conflict we didn't start. It's a conflict that's beyond our control. And so Elsie Lewandowski, who was one of my young people when I was pastor up in Edmonton, uh, she is no longer serving where she was. She'd love to be in Bamenda, but she was moved to a different place. But the decision unilaterally among our missionaries was we want to stay and be as much support and help as we possibly can. Why would anybody do that, knowing that their very life is at risk? Another question that uh, uh, comes to me is, what, what would make a humble, peace-loving believer willing to suffer persecution uh, for his or her faith, or even for their right to life? But our brothers and sisters are willing to do that over there and in many other countries as well. But I think that really kind of connects with the question of what is life and eternity all about? And probably the most important question that has ever been asked was asked by the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, when he says, what must I do to be saved? He realized that his life was at odds with what Paul and Silas, the, the disciples of the Lord, were preaching and so he says, what do I have to do? How do I get on the right side of the issue? And along with that comes another question that I have in, over the years discussed with so many people, especially some of our older you know, German Baptist people who grew up under Armenian teaching where they believed that you could be saved and lost and saved and lost. I know some people, they, they came forward almost every Sunday when an invitation was given just to make sure. And then next Sunday they come forward again. And next Sunday, and, and, and as a young believer, I said, why do they do this? Why don't they just believe what, what God says? But uh, they, were, they had a theological system that uh, caused them to be in doubt. And some of them in their final hours, and I've been with a lot of people in their hour of death, some of them in their last moments worried that if, some, I know I'm a Christian, I know Jesus died for me, I believe in salvation, but if in the last moment I would have such excruciating pain that somehow I would curse or say something or even think something that is opposed to what God says, would I be lost? And I had the joy of taking them to this passage of Scripture uh, it actually, we need to begin in, in chapter 4, something that we've talked about earlier, but just as a background, and that's about the simplicity of personal salvation. Um, 
people tend to look for a sophisticated religious formula that somehow earns them the right to expect that if they die, they would go to heaven. Uh, I have seldom ever found, I, I was almost going to say never, but th that's not quite true. I've seldom ever found anybody who says, I want to go to hell. I actually did. I had a lady who called me up, and she says, Pastor Sig, uh, my cat just died. Will she be in heaven? I said, well, I can't give you any guarantee. There's nothing said about cats in heaven in the Bible. At least I haven't found it. If you know one, let me know. Uh, but I, I never did. And she says, well, if my cat is not going to be in heaven, I don't want to be either. And I said, excuse me, would you place your eternal salvation on where your cat is going to be? Uh, to me, that does not make sense, okay? Your life is probably worth more. The Bible says our life is, is, is more important than the sparrows that fall from the rooftop. Uh, and, and so, you know, we need to think th rethink that. Or someone who says, well, that's all, where all my friends are going to go, so I want to be there too. It's going to be one big party. I said, well, yeah, that's not how Bible describes the place. But people look for a sophisticated religious formula. But God's plan of salvation is very simple. Just read verse 7 in, in chapter 4 of 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another. He's talking about agape love, the kind of love that none of us can have of ourselves. It is God's kind of love manifested in us. We love him because, because he first loved us. And so if anyone uh, loves like this, love comes from God, he says. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Why? Because no one naturally, in their natural self, would love with agape love. Most of our love is somehow self-seeking. I love you for what you can do for me. I love you because you're cute. I love you because... I, I even heard parents say to their children when they misbehaved, Johnny, don't do that. If you're like this, mommy can't love you. Well, that kind of love is obviously not agape love. It's self-serving love or lust or whatever else you want to call it, a fondness. So this clearly describes God's kind of love that we can only have if we've been born again, born into God's family, and he's the love that then oozes out of us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. So it's not about us, it's all about his Son. It is the fact that Jesus came into this world, and what we're going to be celebrating at Good Friday and, and Easter is the fact that not only did he come on what we celebrated at Christmas, uh, come into this world in human form, and, and that's the miracle of the incarnation, God becoming flesh like we are, in all points tempted and tested like as we are, yet without sin, and the only sufficient sacrifice for our sin over against the justice that we sang about, let justice roll like a river. God is a just God. He is also a merciful God. He is also a loving God. And because of his love, he balanced his justice, his need to condemn and punish sin. He balanced that with sending his son to take the punishment for that sin so that you and I could be free 
Not because of what we did, not because we're good, but because of what he did and because he is good, always. And so that's the whole idea. God's plan of salvation rests entirely on what Jesus accomplished for you and for me. You and I cannot add one ounce of value to that. He did it all. Some people try to earn their own salvation. And I've encountered lots of people. And yet God says, all I require is faith in Christ. No more, no less. But faith in Christ means not just head believe. Yeah, I believe there was a Jesus. Yes, he was a historical figure. Yes, I believe that the Bible generally has some good teaching in it. No, it's, it's faith that actually makes a total commitment of our life to him. And so this is what he says in uh, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, the first part of it. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And that takes in the whole gamut of the story of Jesus and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension and his soon return from heaven. This is how we know, incidentally, the word, the phrase we know, appears eight times in this letter. Uh, He is writing to them to provide assurance of what it is they heard and what it is they believe, and he is reinforcing that. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. So, Love here is not a fuzzy, warm feeling towards someone. It is living our lives in obedience to what he has asked us to do, to what he has asked us to be. It's our commitment of life to God himself. Uh, It seems to me that way too many Christians that I know seem to think that they can make their own way in this world, and yet God is saying, You need to learn to overcome the world system. You cannot mesh Christianity with what's happening. Uh, I've uh, encountered a lot of people who try to somehow mix evolution and the biblical creation story, and they try to make room for both. Well, it doesn't work that way. Either there is a God, either there is a creator, and he controls everything, and he has a plan for everything, or there is none. Being a believer, uh, being someone who is born again into God's family is a little, a little bit like pregnancy. Uh, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You either are or you're not. Why, why do we think that we can believe a little bit and negate everything else that God said? Either he is telling us the truth because he is truth, Or he's a liar. In fact, that is what John is inferring in the very next sentence. He's saying his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory, our faith. Who is it that overcomes? It's the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, and that's the whole package deal. And then he talks about that inner witness. Assurance of eternal life comes from the fact that anyone who believes in the Son of God has this 
testimony in his heart. When you are truly born again, when you are a true believer in God, you know in your heart, in your innermost being, and the heart here is not that muscle that pumps blood. It's, it's your innermost seat of emotion. You know for sure that this is true, that Jesus is the real deal. Because if you don't, and again, this, this is the contrast, you can't be just a little bit and not all the way. Anyone, notice this, who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. That's strong language. If you allow those doubts that Satan keeps putting into your mind to question the truth of God's word, you are actually agreeing with Satan that God is a liar and Satan is telling the truth. Have you ever thought of that this way? You know, you're either on his side, Jesus said, he who is not for us is against us. You can't have it both ways. You can't play both sides of the field. He says, you make out God to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And then he talks about that wonderful reality of God affirming. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So it boils down to this. Has there been a time in your life where you recognized on the basis of God's truth, the Word of God, that you were a sinner? That you had an inner sense that, wow, uh, if all of this is true, then I'm on the wrong side of the fence. For me, that came when my father died. Because I was the last person to speak to him. And I, I looked at his dead body in front of me. I was only 16 years old at the time. And I had been taught and raised under evolutionary thinking, you know, Uh, nothing is ever lost in the universe. All there is is matter and energy. Uh, There's no soul. There's no spirit. There's no God. It all just happened somehow. We don't know for sure how, but it just happened. And we will discover it by scientific means. You know what? 60 years later, they still haven't discovered it. Uh, It's a long process, obviously, because if you don't believe the truth, you will never come to it some other way. That's just the way it is. Uh, I learned that the hard way. And so when I stood there and I said, what's the missing ingredient? I mean, just an hour ago, this person spoke to me. Where's the person that inhabited that body now? What if there is a spirit or a soul? What if there is a God? Because I had bought into the evolutionary theory that wasn't. Don't need a God. Everything functions mechanically. Where is my father now, the person that inhabited this body? I didn't have any answer for that. And it wasn't very far from there to say, where would I be if I were lying there still and lifeless like this? And I had a hunch, but I had a very uneasy feeling that it wasn't in a good space. I wrestled with that for an entire year as a teenager some deep theological and philosophical questions until I heard the gospel and I understood 
It was meant for me. And the moment I said yes, the moment I prayed the sinner's prayer, I bought in it hook, line, and sinker. And there was no turning back. He is writing here to believers. This is not a message for unbelievers. This is a message for people who claim to be believers, who are part of the household of God. And he is reminding them that if you have the Son, you have the life. But if you don't have the Son, if you've never prayed that prayer, if you've never surrendered to him, then you don't have the life. Even if you go to church every Sunday, that doesn't save you. It's your relationship with Jesus that makes the difference. And here's the key verse. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why does he bother? They already believe. Yeah, but he says, I notice that even though you believe in the Son of God, you don't have assurance. So I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may no, I have encountered lots of people in my ministry who would think that if you say that you know for sure that you're going to heaven, you're being arrogant. Obviously, those people have never read First John chapter 5. And so I would take them to that and say, well, what about what God says about the matter? Well, that was John. He was just another human being. That was his idea. Okay, so you don't really believe the Bible because all the Bible... No, none of it was actually written by the finger of God except the Ten Commandments. That's the only passage in Scripture that was written by God's finger. Everything else, he used human instrumentality empowered by his Holy Spirit to teach us the truth about life and eternity, about life and death and all that is significant in terms of human existence. And, and you can't pick and choose which of that you want to believe or not. You either take the whole gamut or you have nothing. You either have Jesus or you don't. You can't have a little bit of Jesus. Either he is in your life or he's not. So I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may, or in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Here, here are the implications of eternal life. First of all, we need to understand that eternal life is both qualitative and quantitative. Qualitative means it's the quality of life that we have once we become believers. And that is considerably above, not just a notch above, but considerably above what, where the rest of the world is. Because now our life is informed in our minds, in our hearts, in our emotions, in our actions, by what God says and by what matters to God. We love him because he first loved us, remember? That's the quality part of eternal life. It's a different kind of life. But it's also quantitative because it is eternal because it never ends. If it stops at any point, then it wasn't eternal. That's not rocket science. You either have it or it isn't real and it doesn't exist and you just imagined it. 
This is what John is trying to help to get across to them. This is the confidence that comes to us when we have Christ in our lives, that we can approach his throne of grace. We have throne rights to come into the very holy presence of God in prayer. Uh, and, And we know that if we approach God and we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, a lot of people stumble over this. In our family, we prayed for 16 years for our oldest son who had become rebellious against the faith, even though to all his unsaved friends, he always argued that God exists and God is real, but he didn't live it. And for 16 years, we prayed before he came back into right fellowship with God. That's a long wait. We could have given up a long time ago. And some of you are praying for your children. Some of you are praying for your grandchildren. Some of you are praying for your life partner, that they would come to a full understanding of what God is all about. And, and sometimes God's answer is yes, and we almost immediately have the answer. Sometimes his answer is wait. You're not ready for it. There are some other things that need to happen first. And, and it's not like we can man- manipulate him, but he answers, he hears, he cares, and he knows better than we do what the right answer is. And so therefore, sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's wait, sometimes it has to be no. Because if God would a- allow that answer in the way in which we think it should come, it might not actually be to our best benefit. Just like as parents, sometimes we have to say no to our children, even if we love them. Exactly because we love them, we sometimes have to say no, because we know what the implications would be. So, the idea here is that uh, we, we we can be confident that God cares enough to respond, and we know that we have what we asked of him. The next couple of verses are problematic for a lot of people, and I think it's been debated far more than it needs to be, because he's saying if anyone sees his brother commit a sin uh, that does not lead to death, he should pray for, pray for that brother, and God will give that brother or sister uh, life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. A lot of people have a hard time with that because doesn't all sin lead to death? Because the wages of sin is death, yes, in that sense. But there are circumstances when God visits or judges a sin immediately. Just give you a couple of examples here. Okay, Um, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts chapter 5, you know the story. They, They sold a piece of property, they laid the some of the money at the feet of the apostles and pretended like that was the whole uh, money that they had received for their property. Now, that was a relatively little thing, except that this was the beginning of the Christian church, this was the beginning of uh, Christianity expanding, and God, in that particular case, chose to judge them immediately, because even when they were given a chance to redeem themselves and tell the truth, they still lied, persisted in their lie, and they died. First one, and then the other one, not knowing that the, the partner had died, repeated the same lie. They had obviously agreed to do this, 
And both of them died on the spot. Now, most sins aren't like this, and that's what John is saying. It doesn't always immediately result in the final analysis in that way. But it can happen, for instance, if your sin is to be addicted to alcohol or drugs and get behind a steering wheel, you know what? The judgment may be immediate and it may actually take a few other people out with you. Those would be sins that result in death immediately. Most sins aren't like that because, you know, I'm glad that God doesn't judge all of us like that because every time you and I have said a lie or even implied a lie, if he would have taken us out of this life immediately, there would be nobody in church this morning. None of us would be here. Because all of us have sinned. All of us, even though we wish not to sin, still continue to sin. Because our human nature pulls us downward, and it's only when we totally surrender to God and to Jesus can we live above that level of failure. So we need to understand that God judges things differently, and that's really what he's saying. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that, because if God's judgment falls like it did back in Acts chapter 5, wow, that was a great lesson. Uh, most people after that would say, boy, let's not do that. Okay, that's not a good place to go. But he also reinforces that all wrongdoing and sin, because ultimately wrongdoing is sin because it is setting ourselves up against God's will and doing what we think we want to do rather than what God asks of us to do. So the consequences of this uh, and the certainties of eternal life in verses 18 to 20, three verses, each one begins with a word, we, with a phrase, we know. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. What he implies here is we desire not to sin. Doesn't mean we don't ever sin, doesn't mean we, we don't ever fail God in some way, but once you are truly born of God, you want to live a godly life. The one who, who was born of God keeps him safe. That is, Jesus keeps us safe. He is our present help in time of need, and he helps us to live a godly life, not in our own strength, but in his strength and in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And the evil one cannot harm us if we are born of God in this way. The second verse uh, we know that we are children of God and th that the whole world is under the control of the evil one, under the sway of the evil one. And, and we see this manifested around us every day of the week. The rest of the world is living and, and following the beat of a different drummer. And that drummer is Satan himself because he is the prince of this world. He motivates most of the greed and the hurt and the lying and the cheating and the hurtful things that are going on in this world. But he says, we also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him. Again, this word, we know. Um, he who is truth, and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. That's what he comes down to. It comes down to a personal commitment of our lives in obedience to what God has prescribed for our salvation. And he ends up uh, this whole letter with just one short verse, Dear children, 
That speaks again of the love that he had in his heart for the, for the fellow believers. John was at this point the aged uh, elder, uh, and, and, and his love just went out to all these people that he was writing to. Dear children, keep yourselves or guard yourselves against idols. And, and what he means by that is that an idol is anything and anybody that might hinder you from following God all the way. That could be family, that could be friends, that could be uh, pursuit of fame and fortune, that, that could be uh, the desire for fancier things in life. Um, even our own pride can sometimes bring us to that level. The world has invented so many things that compete for our attention over against what God desires for us. And, and the end of the result of that is, is that so many of these things are so attractive, at least on the surface. I will never forget a speaker when I was just a young, newly born again believer. And he, he reminded us so many of the temptations that come. They're like a little pill. Uh, they're often candy-coated. Some of those I really hate, like... Uh, uh, to me, the Tylenol, coated Tylenol, blah, it's, it's a fake kind of su sweet uh, on the coating, but sweet. And he said it's inches sweet, but miles bitter. And that's how the temptation of the world often comes at us, inches sweet, miles bitter. And, and, and you may ask the question, well, is it really that simple? Uh, uh, and, and I would say, yes, it is, because... We have complicated it more than it needs to be. This, this is not, assurance of salvation is not about rules. It's not about laws. It's not about all the man-made components that so often are attached to our religiosity. It's about voluntary, total surrender to God. That is all that we are, all that we have, all that we ever hope to be, given back to him and saying, Lord, take my life. Let it be. Whatever you desire, Lord, that's what I desire. And herein lies the problem, because for many of us, uh, the main reason why we may lack uh, assurance of salvation is, is, apart from the lack of biblical teaching on it, uh, for many it is simply the fact that we want to keep control of our lives. We do not want to surrender to God. We, do not, we want to be our own person. And uh, I have spoken to a number of people who, whose pride uh, prevents them from praying a sinner's prayer because they'd have to admit that I'm a sinner, that I'm lost without God, and I have a desperate need of a Savior. If that is what's holding you back, my friend, you're facing a bleak eternity. But if you place yourselves into the hands of a loving, caring God who loved us enough to give his son to die on the cross and will be celebrating that on Good Friday and throughout Easter, if, if you do that, you will find that God is real and he speaks to you and he moves you and motivates you to do the right things. And whenever you find yourself at odds with God's perfect will, the moment I say something wrong, there's something triggered in my mind. The Holy Spirit says, Sig, that was wrong. That's wrong thinking. That's wrong speaking. You need to correct that. And, and it, it's, it's a challenge to do that, but it keeps you from going further down because what I, what I discovered as a, uh, just a young first uh, grade student, I found a, a 10 German mark in the, in the schoolyard 
And I was so proud because I never got 10 marks from anybody else. And I, I, I put it in my pocket and, and, and I was so proud of it. Instead of taking it to the principal's office, uh, I wanted to hang on to it. And then I was so happy about it that I couldn't keep it to myself. So I, I waved it around at home. And my mother says, where did you get that money? Uh, I, okay, I, I, don't, I don't want to tell the truth because then I might have to give it away. So I did the dumbest thing anybody possibly could do. I said, Horst gave it to me. Horst was my teacher's son, who was a friend of mine. While my mother took me and marched me up to uh, Mr. Ertl's house and said, where do you have enough money that you give your son 10 marks so he can give it to my son? And of course, Horst knew nothing about it. Well, I not only got punished by the teacher, I also got punished by my parents. That lie had very short legs. <laughs> it, it wasn't worth it. But that's how it often is. You, you tell one lie, then you have to lie again to excuse that lie. And, and you know what? The, the truth is, if you tell the truth, if you live God's way in the first place, you don't have to have such a good memory because when they ask you about it, you actually tell them what happened instead of having to invent things. So here we are. God does not offer us a plan B. It's either all or nothing. What about you, my friend? At this stage in life, do you know for sure that if you would die today or tonight, whether accidentally or by some strange virus or germ or whatever, that you actually end up in eternity with God? You can, according to his word, because he has told us that he who has the Son has the life. If you're not absolutely sure about that, let me invite you, while we sing the final song, to come forward, to be seated here. We'll gladly pray with you, point you to the Word, because we have nothing to offer that God has not offered us in the first place. It is all here in His Word. May the Lord help us to that end. Father, when we think in terms of eternal salvation, it is your gracious gift to, the, to a lost human race who without Jesus would deserve nothing but hell and punishment and retribution for all the things we have done wrong in life. And yet you loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son the one who was from be the beginning before the foundation of the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so, Father, we just pray that this reality would dawn upon all of us here today. For those of us who already have the assurance, we just praise you and thank you for it. Father, for those who struggle, we pray that this would be the day that they would embrace it with all their heart, mind, and soul and leave this place changed for time and eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.